Hi, everyone. I'm Ken Blanchard. And it's Chad Gordon. Ken, you know, we love doing these end of the year kind of best of where we look back at our favorite podcasts of the year. What do you like about kind of learning and and uh, and, and checking back in on, on all the great learnings we've had throughout the years? Well, I think learning is an ongoing process. And I always love to go back to people who really kind of impacted me and uh, and uh, said, wow, that was really fabulous. Yeah, and this one, I really like it. Stephen Kotler, his book, The Art of Impossible, such a fun, fun conversation. What, what did you take away from it? He was really saying that all of us can really be great, you know, that put your dreams into action and be the best you that you can possibly be. That's what the impossible is. So sit back and enjoy the best of for this Blanchard Leader Chat podcast. Do you want to be a better boss, a better leader, a better manager? Are you leading an organization and you want to create higher engagement? You want to make sure that your people not only stay on the job, but rave about you? Well, those are the things that the Ken Blanchard companies can do. And one of the best things you can do is go to KenBlanchard.com and go to check out our tools and resources page. You can email us at podcast at KenBlanchard.com. And we really would like to know everything you're working on. That's for sure, because uh, we like a leadership to be a we, not me process. And so join us and let's have some fun learning from each other. Stephen Kotler, welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. It's good to be with you. We're talking about your your book, The Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer. And I, I love this. This is one of those kind of life hack books where you you look at it and you you study it and you you can take away some really grand ideas if you have some some grand visions and grand ideas. What what made you think that this is where you should focus your time? Why did you attack this subject for this book? Oh, it's oh God, there's so many different ways to answer this question. That's just not fair. But uh, <laughs> the short version is you know, my entire career for 30 years has been spent studying uh, mostly those moments when the impossible becomes possible. And, it, you know, history, it turns out, is littered with those moments. So there was, especially in the past 30 years, there was a lot to witness. But in sports and science and technology, in arts and culture, um, when, when stuff that had never been done before got done, I did my very best to kind of be in the room and tried to use the tools of neuroscience and psychology to figure out how it was possible and, you know, in the end, I, you know, you, you come away with a number of kind of core lessons. One is, you know, it, it just in 30 years of studying this stuff, it, everybody is hardwired to take on great grand challenges. We are literally built for it. Abraham Maslow said, whatever a human being can be, they must be. And he was actually talking about it at a neurobiological level. And just mm. after 30 years of realizing that we are so much more capable than most of us realize, um, and that there's a kind of biological blueprint for how to kind of rise to whatever occasion you're interested in, I just wanted to write it all down finally. So when you when you approach this book and you think about the end user in mind, the person that's going to pick this up and 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 pour through it, what do you hope that they get out of this? Do you feel is this something that you feel like they can take this and change their life dramatically or they can better understand yeah, why things the, happen? You know, the way I explain it to people is this. It's a book about, you know, decoding the secrets of who of people who have accomplished what I would call capital I impossible, that which has never been done. The book is meant to be utilized by anybody interested in what you could call lowercase I impossible. That stuff you think is impossible for yourself. 
I, you know, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. It was a blue collar steel mill town. And I wanted to be a writer from the time I was five or six years old. I had no idea how to become a writer. I, di I didn't mm -hmm. know any writers. There was no internet. There was nobody to ask. There was no clear path. There was a, for me, that's a lowercase I impossible, right? There's no clear path between point A and point B and statistically bad odds of success. Other lowercase I impossibles, overcoming deep trauma, rising out of poverty, uh, becoming world-class at anything, becoming an artist, an entrepreneur, and so forth. These are all small I impossibles. But I'd also like to point out, if you just want to get to work on Monday and be a little more performance-focused, a little more productive, a little more creative, the blueprint is the same. Peak performance is nothing more than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. That's the central idea at the heart of the book. So whether or not you want to be better at work on Monday, you're interested in tackling small I impossible, or you're interested in going after capital I impossible, turns out the formula is basically the same. Yeah, and your, your breakdown on the formula, it, it's, I like how it's, it's structured. It's, it's, it's around motivation, it's around learning, creativity, it's around flow. Let's, let's kind of dig into that formula and, and, and talk about motivation. We're, we're a month into this year, month plus actually, but a lot of people, when they think about motivation, they think about the year starts, you know, creating better habits. They, they think about, you know, being a better person at the end of each calendar year. And, um, people are probably in the midst of it right now. When you think about motivation, you, you, you talk about motivation decoded. What did you learn that surprised you about, about how easy or how difficult it is to, to, to motivate yourself? Well, it's interesting. It, it, it's such a tricky question. When, when psychologists talk about motivation, it's a catch-all term, right? It means extrinsic motivation, external stuff like money, sex, and fame, things we want in the world, internal motivation, passion, purpose, mastery. These are internal drivers. And they also mean goals and grit. Grit is the stuff you need when motivation runs out. So psychologically, it's a, it's a sort of a catch-all term. So you were actually talking about a whole bunch of stuff. But the thing that is most interesting about motivation is we have five big intrinsic motivators, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And the coolest thing about getting them to work for you is you just go farther faster um, and with a lot less energy along the way because these are all our basic drivers. We're biologically hardwired to utilize them. And interestingly, they sort of evolved in a sequence and they come online in a sequence. And if you can get them all sort of pointed in the same direction, the way I explain this is curiosity is, is essentially our foundational motivator because it gives us focus for free. When we're curious about stuff, we pay attention to it without a lot of internal energy or strife. If you can figure out where three or four year curiosities intersect, where they're all pointing, you've got the foundations for passion. Once you have passion, it's designed to be coupled to something outside yourself, giving yourself purpose. Once you have purpose, your body wants the freedom to pursue that purpose. Your mind wants the freedom to pursue that purpose. So autonomy, the next intrinsic driver comes online. And finally, the last one is mastery. Mastery is the desire to get better and better at the things that we do. So once you have the freedom to pursue your purpose, you want the skills to pursue that purpose well. And they're designed to work in an order and in a sequence. And you asked me what it was most surprising about motivation is because I work on the neurobiology of all this stuff um, under the hood where it's coming from. And I was looking at all aspects of motivation. I was surprised by how interlinked they were, by how much of a sequence they were 
they're designed to work in. And that was one of the things that was most surprising. It was very clear um, in putting all the research together that all this stuff biologically is designed to sort of, it's not that you can't, you can, you can do this stuff out of order. It just doesn't, you gotta, it's more effort. It's harder to get it to work then. So that was what was most surprising to me. You know, it's, paraphrasing here, but that, that quote, like, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And, and one of the big, you know, one of the big things that Ken always talks about is, is, you know, as, as you're deciding on taking on a new goal or task, you know, the, the fact that if you don't set a goal, if you don't actually plot out what your what, what the intention is at the very end, you, you know, then it doesn't really matter. You're just kind of spinning your wheels. So as it applies to... Yeah, I think he's totally right. And what the research says... So this is awesome. You you set me up perfectly. Thank you so much. Well, that was Ken, um, but I love it. What, yeah. So what do you do once you get all your intrinsic motivators pointed in the same direction? The research sh- shows you have to add in goal setting. You start the goal setting process when you're trying to turn passion into purpose. That helps you come up with kind of you with the bio we are as ken was kind of alluding to as human beings we're goal-directed machines so we're designed to go places and the brain wants to if, if it has a place to go it will get there faster and the system needs three levels of goals you need a mission level goal for your life or a series of mission level goals um then you would need underneath that subset of high hard goals so a mission level goal i'm a writer i might be to be the greatest writer in the history of the world right high hard goals are the one to five year chunks tasks that would help you accomplish that mission so i want to get a degree in journalism i want to go to grad school in creative writing i want to get a job on a newspaper i want to write a book on cooking etc those are high hard goals and then you need clear goals these are daily to-do lists now the research shows there's a specific way you can set them for maximum effectiveness etc etc but absolutely right once you have your intrinsic motivators online the system functions best with at least three levels of goals so many people um you know I've seen this where they, they look at somebody, oh, they're just lucky. They're just, they're just very fortunate. And, and then there's that other, you know, that other quote, again, I always butcher these, but just, you know, it's amazing how lucky people are when they work really hard. You, you talk about grit. I think grit is, is really, um, a huge driving force on, on people that, that are able to reach that mountaintop. Um, what did you find out about grit? Is that something that's innate? Is that something that can be developed? Is that something that comes from nature, is that nature and nurture? Yeah, what, those, you know, what did you find? Great questions. So one thing that's important, grit is innate. And we have research going back to kind of William James and the first psychological textbook ever written. We have level after level after level of grit. The way William James explained it, he said most people – you know, occasionally discover that there's a second wind, right? They push harder than they thought, and suddenly, you know, they burst through in the second wind, and it all got easier. Most people don't actually know there's a third wind or a fourth wind or a fifth wind because they routinely don't get in the habit of pushing through those barriers. They never discover what they're actually capable of. The beginning when I said, you know, one of the things I discovered in 30 years of this work is we are all capable of so much more than we know, I always, there's a caveat there, which is human potential is invisible, especially to ourselves. You only find out what you're actually capable of by stretching your skills to the utmost again and again and again. And human capability is an emergent property, and it emerges from that. So in a sense, the only way you can find out if you're capable of taking on the impossible is by going after the impossible. But the cool thing is, if you do it right, it's a lot easier to get there. And this brings me back to grit. If 
you have all of your intrinsic motivators paint pointing in the same direction and you've got the proper tiers of goal setting, you're going to start getting a lot more flow as a result um, for a lot of different reasons. And so you start training grit around now properly. And the reason is once you start getting a lot more flow in your life, Flow is sort of the secret ingredient to grit. We know this over and over and over and over again. Once flow starts showing up in activities, the boost in motivation goes through the roof, and that includes the motivation to train grit. Now, grit is what you want, right? When all the other stuff is gone, right? When you don't have flow, when you don't have any intrinsic motivation, when you just have to power through, you're going to rely on grit. But the way to start, when to start training it so it's not demotivating is after you're starting to get a little bit of flow kind of automatically by the process. But, you know, grit is absolutely foundational um, and entirely, entirely trainable. It's just a very, you have to do it very, very slowly. So from a motivation standpoint, as we kind of like that, I'll ask the final question as it applies to that, because it's so interesting to me. When you... I mean, you're a guy that you told me early on in the pre-interview. I mean, you 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 knew you wanted to be a writer from the very beginning, and and you've written you've written several books. You're a best-selling author, and you you've you've reached that 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 uh, that high mountaintop. I mentioned it before. So somebody else that that uh, isn't there yet, but has an idea of where they want to get. What what steps should they take very clearly if they wanted to increase their motivation and and uh, and take step towards their goal beyond beyond all the things we've talked about between goals and 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 creating some grit. What's some of the first things you would do if you wanted to better yourself? Write the great novel, get better in the gym, eat better. What's the first step you take? You know, um, I I can only give you you know I, I I don't there is no first step. There is a book called The Art of Impossible that is everything I've I've learned about this. There are a bunch of onboarding processes and everything we're talking about now, motivation through grit. These are onboarding processes that sort of take you into the peak performance game. At the end of the book, you'll find out that there are about six things you need to sort of focus on every day and about seven other things you need to focus on every other week. But it's sort of like if I were to ask you about, you know, your job, even as a podcaster, and I want to be a professional podcaster. What are the three things I want to do that will make me great at it? You can't answer that question, yeah. and I certainly can't answer it with peak performance. I wrote a book that's kind of got as best of a summary as I can give you, um, but there, it, I honestly think that attitude that asks for what are the three things I can do Monday morning or what's the one place to start is defeatist. If you go at peak performance that way, um, you're, you're actually, I don't think, interested in peak performance. Um, and it's a different, it's a different in mindset. Um, so I apologize for dodging your question, but the best I could do is the book. No, I, I appreciate it because it really leads into the, the next part. And, and I, I just remember this because Ken had shared this, Ken Blanchard had shared, um, if you ever stop learning, you might as well lie down and have them put, throw dirt on you because you're already dead. And, and you just talked about if you really want to reach the reach for the stars. If you want to do great things, it's not this quick and easy process. You it's this ongoing learning process. You've got to go out and seek out how to do these sort of things and, and then challenge yourself to do it. So for you, when it's, you, when I you mean, look at learning, so much it's more so valuable than most people realize, but you can't reduce it down in that way. It's a, it's a system, right? And it's designed to work in an order. And that order on a certain level was determined by evolution millions of years ago right, in a totally different environment, but the systems are still the same. And 
you're either getting your biology to work for you or against you. And the one thing I will add to this that I think is super interesting and worth pointing out, we're designed to go big. That was where we started the conversation. Mm -hmm. Turns out not going big is bad for you. The system is designed to work in a certain way. And if you don't get it working in that way, um, not great things happen. And the easiest example here is there are eight known causes of depression. Two of them get the most attention, which are uh, trauma and uh, genetics. And it turns out if you look under the hood of genetics, genetics are always only 50% of the issue. It's never, I have the genetics, I can't make enough serotonin, and that's it. It's all, there's always life factors. And trauma, the vast majority of the time, leads to post-traumatic growth not post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic growth is the idea, it's the Hemingway idea, the world breaks everyone and afterwards many are stronger at the broken places. If you look at the other six major causes of depression, the reason I'm mentioning this now, we just talked about motivation, the sequence it's designed to work in and all that stuff. The first major cause of depression is lack of meaningful work. And if you look under the hood of that, lack of meaningful work is work that doesn't make me curious, doesn't align my passion or my purpose. I'm not given the autonomy, the freedom to pursue it in the way I would want to. And it doesn't afford me, you just mentioned learning, which is what triggered this, doesn't afford me the opportunity for learning mastery, and it doesn't produce flow. As a result, you get anxiety and depression, um, which and the other five cause, major causes of anxiety and depression are very much the same. The system is designed to work in a certain way, in a certain order, and not using it the way it's been designed is actually bad for you. Why do you think, or why don't, um, you know, when you think about the premise of a lifelong learner, you know, somebody that mm-hmm. is just has a thirst for knowledge and, and devours books or, or, or creates an interest in a, in an uh, intrigue in a, in a particular topic and just goes after it. The importance of learning and never stopping learning. Why do you feel like that is, is a key to becoming a peak performer? Well, the way, so when we talk about biology peak performance, you're literally talking about four sets of skills. We've been talking about everything that might get housed under motivation. There's another how chunk under learning. There's another chunk under creativity and another chunk in flow. And the way I explain all, this is all, that's the full suite of cognitive peak performance tools. And the reason is motivation gets you into the game. Learning allows you to continue to play. Creativity, especially when you're going after high, hard goals, you don't quite know how to get there, is how you steer. And flow is how you turbo boost the results. That's the whole sequence. So learning is, it's foundational, right? You can't, you got to keep feeding the engine, especially if you need creativity. Um, but I think for anything, lifelong learning is just, it's just one of the secrets. There are ways to learn more efficiently, more productively to make it a lot easier and a lot more enjoyable. But lifelong learning is not optional on the path to be performance. You talk about the five not so easy steps to learning almost anything. What's the limitations on on that uh, that five step process? Can you can you approach? So I, this was a, I, I, I have a, I can tell you exactly what the limitations are on this one. This was this was you know most of the book. I run the Flow Research Collective, and um, we're a neurobiology research and training organization. And almost everything in the book is based on hardcore science. This is one of those things that was based on my own experience. So a caveat, though it does uh, dovetail with the research, but 
I, uh, I had to develop expertise as a journalist. I was a journalist for a very long time, and I wrote for over 100 different publications. And I, these very you know, big-name publications that had big fact-checking departments. And fact-checkers were ruthless, and you had to get it right if you ever wanted to work for them again. And so I had to learn a lot of subjects very, very, very well at an expert level um, very, very quickly. And this was the process I developed over you know, 20 or 30 years of doing that. Um, and the limitation I discovered was quantum computing. Mm. I could use this system to learn everything. The only thing I could not, where I was just like, you know what? And this was, by the way, back in the late 90s. I actually did end up writing about quantum computing extensively in uh, my book, Bold, and my uh, not my most recent book, the book before that, Future is Faster Than You Think. I did end up writing about quantum back in the 90s when I was first trying to learn about it, to actually write about it, I could not. It was it was actually the limit. I don't think it's because we didn't know enough about quantum computing. And at that point, it was such an insider thing. But one of my beats as a reporter was those moments that science fiction ideas became science fact, yeah. which is one of the reasons I was in the room so much when The Impossible Became Possible. That was sort of my beat as a journalist for The New York Times, for Wired, for Discover, for Popular Science, and a bunch of other publications. So. Um, but quantum computing was the was actually the line. That was the thing I couldn't actually use the system <laughs> to learn. So you're saying, uh, um, you know, maybe use it to to learn the guitar, or maybe use it to learn a little bit about. Uh, so you can. So there's two different systems in the book, right? right there's one right. for knowledge acquisition, which is the five uh, the five not so easy steps, and then there's a separate technique, an eighty twenty technique that was developed by Tim Ferriss that is incredibly effective for skills acquisition. Great book. We're talking with Stephen Kotler, The Art of Impossible. And Stephen, you dig in a little bit about emotional intelligence. That's a big part of our world at, at Blanchard about EQ. Just, just you know, people strive or uh, people uh, reach heights. Um, you know, maybe lesser people reach heights in the business world because they have higher emotional in- intelligence. What did you learn about EQ? Yeah, there's that, there's that great quote, quote, right? IQ gets you hired. EQ gets you promoted. Um what I learned about EQ is if your interest is in peak performance at a really basic level, emotional intelligence matters for two foundational reasons, three foundational reasons. One, there's something, the, if you want enough energy to deal with life's problems, perform at your best to actually produce the state of flow, state of optimal performance, it's a high energy state. So you, you need as much energy as possible. Having a robust social support network is really key to kind of a lowering anxiety, but also to the amount of energy we can bring to any situation. So at a, at a foundational level, emotional intelligence is really important because it helps because there's an energy penalty for having a poor support network. We can talk about why if you're curious, but I'll give you a high level answer first. Um, Second of all, the obvious, between you and your goals, other people lie. There's just no way around it. There's no high, hard goal you might want to go after in this world that is not going to involve other people. Now, they could be your allies. They could be your enemies. One way or another, you're going to kind of need to maneuver through people, and emotional intelligence makes it so much easier. Finally, um, I think obviously – 
when you're going after high hard goals, and I've, I've, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying people who have gone after impossible goals, having, having a mission, um, being passionate about that mission and having good emotional intelligence allows you to attract other people to your vision. There's no way to go after some of these incredibly high hard goals solo. You're going to need support and you're going to need help and emotional intelligence uh, allows you to do that as well. So this is a very practical and sort of a ruthless, perhaps, take on emotional intelligence from a very peak performance angle, but um, that is one way to think about it. There's all the other kind of other reasons for emotional intelligence, but from a peak performance aspect, those are the three reasons that matter most. We've got time for just a, a couple more questions. You, you put a lot, of, um, a lot of weight on creativity to, uh, to uh, reaching the impossible, to, to become a peak performer. How do you harness creativity? How do you use it to your advantage? You also, it's not just going after the impossible, right? You, I mean, if you, you know, the numbers, if, if you look at anything, Adobe State of Create study, any of the major studies on creativity in the workplace, creatives are so much happier, more content, more fulfilled than non-creatives, and they get paid so much more money mm. than non-creatives. Creativity has been called the most important skill in the 21st century, and this across the boards. IBM did a global survey of 1,400 CEOs about the most important quality in a CEO, creativity top the list. When they went over what are the most important skills our kids need to learn in the 21st century to thrive, creativity, again, tops the list. It's foundational, but for high, hard goals, when you don't know, I wanted to be a writer. I was in Cleveland, Ohio. How the hell did I become a writer? That's creative problem solving. I'm finding a path where there isn't one. You need that kind of creativity when you're going after any kind of high, hard challenges. And it you know, makes life much more rewarding. And the good news is you know, creativity has been very, very hard to train because we've been trying to train up a set of skills. And there, that you can have some success there, and there's, there's good work there, and there's ways to do it. But it's actually it's much more of a state of consciousness, a way of shifting the brain. If you take creativity kind of down to the foundational neurobiological processes, what is creativity? You know, there's a bunch of different ways um, you can treat it, but a bunch of different kind of ways to train creativity. One of the easiest and simplest, it's going to sound ridiculous, but I'll explain it, is to try to be in a good mood. Uh. So any of the, any of the meditative, any of the practices, whether it's a gratitude list, a mindfulness training protocol, or regular exercise, these are three things that lower anxiety and improve mood. And if you're interested in creativity, that's one great place to start. And it comes down to this portion of your brain known as the anterior cingulate cortex. The anterior cingulate cortex does a bunch of different stuff. One of the things it does is it finds sort of remote associations between ideas. And the simple way to think about this is the more fear, the more anxiety in the system, the more the brain wants the logical solution, the tried and true solution, the thing that's going to work every time. And it doesn't, it says, oh my God, there's lots of anxiety. Let's get you a simple solution. We don't want choice paralysis. And it doesn't even give you access to kind of those more farther flung remote associations that are actually the foundation of divergent thinking and a lot of creativity. So one of the easiest ways, if you want more creativity in your life, is to, is to work on anxiety in your mood, actually. That's interesting. That's very interesting because I guess it just frees up, frees up your brain to, to do the fun things. Yeah, versus... your brain basically goes, oh, look, you're calm. I won't 
waste the energy making you anxious. I can look for farther, more creative, more innovative solutions to the problem. Mm. There's a lot of different systems in the brain that sort of work that way. I'll give you another one that's really funny. It's really obvious is respiration. If you, if you often hear in, in mindfulness communities and in breathwork communities about making your inhale twice as long as your ex, or your exhale twice as long as your inhale. Right. If your exhale gets over seven, eight seconds, your brain goes, oh, look, that's a long exhale. John only exhales that long when he's calm. He must be calm. I won't waste all this energy making norepinephrine and cortisol because those are energetically expensive things to make. Works the same way with a good mood. Love that. Love that. You mentioned uh, earlier on a couple times, and I should have paused, how do you define flow? What do you mean oh, by yeah. flow? How does that fit into what you're trying to accomplish yeah, and, and so, hitting peak um, performance? I, well, you know, I started the conversation with everybody's hardwired for impossible, and I didn't do anybody a service by not finishing it. And one of the reasons <laughs> we know this is because of flow. Flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. When you get so focused on the task at hand, everything else starts to disappear. Action and awareness will start to merge. Sense of self, self-consciousness will get very quiet. Time passes strangely. It'll slow down sometimes. Get a freeze frame effect. Maybe it's been a car crash. Occasionally, it'll speed up. Five hours will go by in like five minutes. And throughout, all aspects, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. Flow, when I say we are all hardwired for the impossible, one of the reasons we know this is flow is this state that evolution basically created to optimize performance in humans. It's a, it's, and it's universal. It's found in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. And the fact that it's universal um, in humans, it's actually universal in most mammals, by the way. It's not just humans. Um, it's been conserved for a long time evolutionarily, um, is a... Uh, you know, it means that everybody who's listening to this has access to flow, and flow is an astounding increase in performance capabilities. Uh, just to put some numbers around it, and I'll try to give you a little some sources so they don't sound so outrageous. <laughs> uh, McKinsey did a 10-year study. They found that top executives on average report being 500% more productive in flow. We see similar spikes in motivation and grit. Um, Department of Defense looked at learning in flow and found that we can learn 240 to 500% faster in flow, depending on what, what it is we're trying to learn. Uh, creativity spikes, all aspects of creative problem solving, by the way, spike in flow um, from 400 to 700%, depending on whose studies you're sort of looking at. Um, and on and on, you see meaning, purpose, well-being, overall life satisfaction all go through the roof. Empathy, environmental awareness are also amplified by flow. It's a huge swatch of things that get jacked up by this state. And this state is available to anyone, anywhere. For and very trainable, which is one of the things that we've discovered at the Flow Research Collective. Um, we train about 1,000 people a month, and we train everybody. We train, you know, we start with, like, kind of members of the U.S. Special Forces and professional athletes through CEOs of much of the major Fortune 100 companies, um, and C-suite executives to, you know, soccer moms from Indiana and insurance brokers from Iowa. Um, and so, you know, we've got great data on this stuff. And on average, using the basic psychometric instruments that everybody uses to measure flow, we'll see a 70% boost in flow on the back end of our trainings. So this stuff is very trainable. 
So when you train it, what does that look like? Is that is that time time uh, uh, together in a classroom? Is that personal coaching? No, what, no, no. It's it very. I mean, yeah, we yeah. we train That's so it. intriguing. For to us, me. it's an eight week digital program. We right. put you through the program with a PhD psychologist or neuroscientist as your coach, um, and uh, there's some group coaching along the way also. Um, but the the answer to your question is really this: flow states have triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. Right. There are about twenty two that are known. There are probably way more, but that's what we've discovered so far. And if you're interested in more flow, these triggers are your toolkit. Um, that that's what you reach for. I love that. You know, for our longtime listeners, um, this is one of those podcasts where it is very clear we have barely scratched the surface. <laughs> this has been a, a fun conversation, wide ranging. The art of impossible, Stephen Collar. If, if there's one thing that you want our listeners to kind of take away from from our conversation today, from from what you know, what you've learned, what would you want to share with them? Just sort of where we started. As far as I can tell, honest to God, man, I, I spent my career studying people who've done the most extraordinary things in the world. None of them started out extraordinary. They just started out like you and me. It's constant application of a bunch of foundational biological principles that gets you A to B. We're all capable of the extraordinary. That's my final thought. Stephen Kyler, the art of impossible, a peak performance primer. Stephen, if people wanted to connect with you offline, where would you send them? StephenKotler.com or FlowResearchCollective.com. Either of those, um, if you're interested more in, in the flow stuff, flowresearchcollective.com, anything else, stephenkotler.com. Stephen, thank you so much for joining uh, us on this episode of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. And please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard. Chad, I always enjoy your interviews, but this one with Stephen Kotler, the author of The Art of the Impossible, was really over the top. You know, his subtitle is uh, Peak Performance Primer. Now, you might think, well, I'm not a peak performer. Now, I mean, why would I want to read this? Well, I want to tell you, he has so many great one-liners uh, here. For example, he says, all of us can stretch beyond our capabilities. So he's, he said, all of us can be peak performers in our own way. Secondly, he says, we are capable of so much more than we think. Wow, isn't that pretty powerful? Uh, next, he says, not going big is bad for you. <laughs> So, I mean, you really need to go for it, you know. Uh, and uh, he says that uh, the, the key to creativity is a good mood. That's <laughs> so consistent with what I learned from Norman Vincent Peale. He always said that positive thinkers get positive results. Uh, and uh, uh, he goes on to say that turning dreams 
into your most recent achievement is what this is all about. Be a dreamer. You know, go for uh, something. Get excited about it. This guy, Kotler, is something, and he's going to excite you. Listen to this tape. Get the, the book. Get into it. Because what he really gets at, so many different things, is, for example, he says, IQ will get you hired, but it's EQ, your emotional intelligence, that gets you promoted. Because what that does, it permits you to gather people around you because you know how to deal with them and all. Because you can't be a great achiever all by yourself. So thanks, Chad. Thanks, Stephen. This was unbelievable. I'm going to get that book and go over it with detail. Even though I'm just celebrated the 60th anniversary of my 21st birthday, I want to know about how I can really, uh, you know, create the impossible still and dream big dreams. God bless. Take care of yourself, Stephen. You're the best. Thank you.